0: go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment that's cloudoptimizer.com
1: I'm Nil Zacharias and you're listening to Eat for the Planet on this show we try to answer the question how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet the show features conversations with food industry leaders health and sustainability experts as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. Justin Kolbeck from Wild Hype, thank you for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Hey Neil, awesome to be here. Thanks Justin. So why don't we start off with talking about what you ate growing up. That's not a normal question I tend to ask, but I'm very curious because of the work that you're doing now. Uh, I think it's always important to contextualize something that seems very futuristic into uh, what it is that we're actually focused on here, which is food. And food is uh, something we all obviously share in common and have personal histories with. So what did you eat growing up?
2: Yeah, this is a first for me. Um, let's see. Well, I was I was raised by a, a, a very hardworking single mom uh, with three siblings in the house. So the short answer is whatever she could uh, pull together in short order. Um, she, I don't know. I mean, classic American food. She's got this like chicken dish with like gravy and mashed potatoes. On the days that she had a lot of time, that I still like crave. In fact, she's coming to visit us my kids and I, uh, this Friday, and that's already on the menu, um, to like craft mac and cheese. Uh, I remember a lot of dinners where I would like sort of just have cereal for dinner, depending on like what was happening. So, you know, with a, with a big, busy household like that, it it wasn't necessarily a free for all, but you know, she did the best we could, but I would say, you know, I'm a kid who grew up in the eighties and nineties and, you know, you can think about all the things that were on the the menu back then. Uh, it looks a little different to what I feed my kids today. (laughs)
1: Uh, But I think it's so important, right? Because your early experiences with food informs um, how you look at the food system. Um, And maybe if you were to think back about the circumstances under which your family uh, consumed food or or your parents uh, bought food, uh, you can then try to maybe have a broader perspective on how uh, consumers in the food system approach it. Uh, and of course, this evolves and changes over time, trends change. Um, and of course, it's very dependent on your socioeconomic conditions. Um, but I think it's always important to keep that at the back of our minds, especially when, we are, when we're talking about the future, we can't forget that food doesn't exist independent of its uh, uh, social and cultural um, implications. Um, so we'll keep that at the back of our minds as we dive into the work that you're doing, uh, most specifically with wild type. But before we really get into the the meat of it with wild type, uh, what was your professional background? I know you weren't from the you didn't have a background in the food industry uh, or science necessarily, so maybe a little bit more about your professional background and how you were drawn into the issue um, of food and food sustainability
2: yeah i I would say I, I don't have the most highly credentialized background for a food entrepreneur, I would say. Um, but the reason I got into this and I'm so passionate about it largely came from a couple experiences I had when I was uh, working in the US Foreign Service. So I was a diplomat and worked, um, this is a long time ago, started in 2007. Uh, that was my first assignment in a place called Peshawar, Pakistan, um, which is actually home to a lot of refugees from Afghanistan that just sort of live on the outskirts of the city. Um, and so at that during that assignment, I, I was sort of introduced to this idea of you know sort of what living on the real edge of society looks and feels like in a very visceral way. And then a couple assignments later on the other side of the border of the Duran line, I was on a provincial reconstruction team in Afghanistan. And my job was very similar to what, what it sounds like was to work with the governor to try to help make the that province work uh, as effectively as possible uh, it was a place called Paktika which is uh, just on the other side of the tribal areas from Pakistan that and that assignment I uh, didn't go to the country thinking that I'd spend a lot of time on food but in fact that was one of the main topics that the governor governor and I regularly worked on um, and and I you know until you sort of meet people, who are starving, literally, you don't really fully appreciate just how lucky we are, uh, in this country to where, you know, your biggest, for many of us anyway, not everybody, certainly, um, the biggest food question we face in the week is like, do I want Italian or American or sushi? Right. Like that is a, a very unique issue that <laughs> isn't in every country. And so I, I think this experience in Afghanistan really stuck with me and, you know, after that assignment, I took a break and went to go go get an MBA, which is actually where I met Aria. Uh, he was there after he had finished his MD and PhD, doing uh, the first year of his residency in internal medicine at Yale, which is which is where we met. Um, and from that year on, I started just on my own time, kind of poking around and getting interested in sort of like these big global food system questions. And and I think similar to you, I I came to this impression or this conviction really that our species is on a crash course for a global food security crisis in our lifetimes if we don't change uh, how we source our food. And of course, you know, a lot of the way that we source food today is very extractive and is certainly exacerbating the climate crisis in, in a super big way. Um, but at that point, I hadn't really... Uh, reached a point of conviction that I was willing to sort of spend my professional energies on this and actually went to work as a as a consultant uh, for about four and a half years. And during the second half of that time, Ari and I started working on wild type, what would become wild type, uh, in the moonlight, so nights and weekends effectively. And for the first year when we self-funded the company, we were j- literally just the two of us trying stuff out, eating what we made and trying to get to this place of conviction, I mean, this is 2016 and early 17, very different uh, stage to where the industry is today, that this could ever be a thing. You know, at the time there were like two companies. Um, and so, you know, I, it, it took us a while to kind of get to the point where, where this was, it felt like something that we could actually do. And so that was sort of my circuitous path to, to founding this company. Um, I think grounded in some pretty eye-opening experiences overseas.
1: And did you always, um, from the get-go, when you met Arya start talking about the idea of developing cultivated uh, meat in some form? Or were you just looking at the sort of uh, wide range of problems in the food system and exploring various solutions, including plant-based meat, which was, I think, at that point in time on its... Um, on its comeback trail, I would say, with Beyond Meat. I think the Beyond Burger came out in 2016, um, yep. somewhere around that time. So, you know, it felt like there was this resurgence of uh, plant-based meat, uh, a 2.0 version of it from the early days back with Tofurkey and other companies that have been around for 30, 40 years.
2: Yeah, I, I would say it wasn't the first thing that we came up with. We were, um, you know, good friends first. And I, and I think both of us had this unrequited Um, entrepreneurial interest uh, that I think, relatively speaking, came to us a little bit later than it does to many people. So, you know, we, yeah, we looked at a lot of, you know, potential ways to do this. And in the end, I think we came back to this technology because it was so closely related to what Aria was doing uh, later in his full-time job. So he was working at the Gladstone Institutes, uh, which is associated with UCSF. Um, I would go visit him on the weekend sometimes and, you know, he would be making these sheets of heart muscle cells that would actually like beat in unison, like as if it like even down to the cellular level, the cell knows that it needs to sort of have this pacemaking quality. And you just like watch this sheet of of muscle cells just sort of like twitch. And, you know, when you see that, it's like, is this really that far from meat? Right. And if we can do this in a way and actually eventually get this kind of technology to where. You could install that fresh tissue into a damaged heart to help somebody have a new lease on life. Isn't making food and meat a little bit easier? In fact, and so I th- I think that's that's really where the the genesis of the company came from was largely related to Arya's day job.
1: And obviously, he um, he understood the science at that point. So there's definitely uh, an advantage of it. What made you besides knowing the science, um, which obviously I wouldn't say was theoretical because it was proven that it can be done. It was more a question of, uh, I guess, producing uh, organ uh, tissue is very different from producing food at scale, which I'm assuming is the long-term plan with any food company. Um, What data points help inform you that this was the right path to pursue and the reason for that, you know, it's sort of related to my previous question, but I really want to spend more time on this because around the same time that you were exploring this as a solution, it's very clear that a few other entrepreneurs, uh, looking at the same problem with our food system, um, decided to pursue different paths. Um, and you obviously you can't know why they choose those paths, but why is it that you um, and your co-founder? Became convinced that this was worthy of all the time and effort and sweat and tears and late nights and uh, long weekends. Uh, why was it? What what gave you that surety that this was a path worth pursuing? And maybe maybe you didn't get the surety, and you just decided to pursue it anyway.
2: <laughs> well, um, you know the the opportunity cost to make a switch at that point was was relatively high. For, I think for both of us, you know, we were kind of well on our way toward other professional pursuits. So I think we both wanted to feel pretty confident that this was a, a very viable thing. Um, so I, I think at the time when we were looking at it, you know, as you said, there was sort of plant-based V1 to you know, the, the old hockey pucks that people would trot out at the barbecues once in a while, the plant-based, you know, burgers, um, um, that were, you know, they're fine. I've eaten plenty of those and I think they're okay. They're certainly not necessarily satisfying like the Boca burgers of the world. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time, in you know 2016 and 17, Impossible was just getting started with this second wave of plant-based products that were a step function better in terms of quality. And I would sort of classify that generation or this current generation that we're seeing of plant-based solutions as like plants plus, right? There's like something else that's being mixed in with the plants in, in the case of Impossible as heme or their leg like hemoglobin which helps give it that red color and the sort of meaty flavor. And, and I think what Ari and I were thinking about then, and even more so now, was what comes next, right? How do we continue to build on this trajectory of giving people who, meat eaters and seafood eaters like me, um, new options in a way that would tread easier on the planet? And the whole idea behind cellular agriculture is that the cell knows what to do, right? You don't have to like break a plant down to its most basic components and then sort of rebuild it in this very complex way towards something that approximates meat. A cell, if you put it in the right environment, will become the constituents of meat. So the same proteins, same fats, and so on. And so I think then, as now, we felt that that is this third generation, I think, that could come. And, you know, it may not be the sort of like pure thing that we're seeing that we're all imagining this could eventually be where you can kind of like take our salmon fillet and install it in a fish and off it would swim. Right. I like, we're not there yet. And, and we might, we might never get there uh, in an economic way, but I, I, I do think that this is like what comes next after plant plus in my, in my mind. And, and that's, that's sort of where our heads were is that if we're going to undertake this long multi-year journey, very costly one let's just make something that will blow consumers minds and just be like wow i cannot believe this was made by human hands and not nature
1: and how did you decide that seafood was going to be the first um product line i'm I'm assuming is it the first or at least the one that you are going to focus on for the first five plus years of your existence um was that a what was the reasoning behind that choice given, of course, now assuming you've decided we're going to move down the cultivated meat path, uh, you're presented with numerous options. If you'd looked at what the second wave of plant-based food companies had done, they all started pursuing the burger because the burger is most um, widely consumed in the U.S. So uh, the the logical first choice would have been the burger. Um, and perhaps maybe some other companies went for that first. Why did you choose the seafood path?
2: Three reasons, I would say, were top of our mind then. So the first is, I think Ari and I just, you know, he, he lived in a bunch of countries abroad too. And, and I think both of us have this global mindset. And without comparison, seafood is by far the biggest source of animal protein that our species eats. And so if you want to have a big impact, why not work on the, you know, in the biggest pond, pardon the pun. The second reason is we saw just a, a really incredible opportunity. So at that time, there were no seafood alternatives to speak of. I mean, there are some like tiny niche products here and there. But if you wanted the experience of eating seafood, in particular with all of the same nutrients that make those seafood products very appealing you didn't really have much of a choice. Right. Um, so, and and even today, there's not a single product on the market that has, you know, in the case of salmon, let's say the same omega-3s, the same protein and so on. So that was the second reason. It was just, you know, really wide open space with with not a lot of innovation happening at the time that we started the company. And then the third reason I I think would be health. Um, and that's multifaceted. So on one hand, uh, seafood is this great thing that a lot of people associate with positive health benefits, which is absolutely true, but it comes laden with the pollution that we've inserted into the environment. And how that shows up on our plate is with things like mercury and antibiotics and parasites, microplastics, and the list goes on. And it's one of these weird things where it's like, we just accept these flaws and we have to by necessity, minimize our intake for fear of getting, let's say, mercury poisoned, which I know several people have had that happen uh, in the not-too-distant past. The other side of the health coin was that seafood is healthy. And if we're going to make an alternative, let's not make a plant-based version of a burger that's equally high in saturated fat that you shouldn't eat every day anyway. But I think most doctors, if you ask them, like, what kind of animal protein should you be eating? They would probably tell you to eat fish. Um, with the asterisk of all those sort of warnings that I mentioned, right? So if the idea was to make an alternative that somebody could eat every day, that would be super delicious and nutritious and wouldn't come along with all the baggage, environmental baggage that that fish has. Um, So those were kind of the the three colliding factors that led us towards seafood.
1: And if I was going to follow sort of a... Linear thread, I would probably leave these questions around consumer perceptions to the end, but I'm actually going to jump ahead and get to that first before I get into your technology. Um, for all the reasons you just outlined, why why seafood is a good choice to to focus on, it is also one of the reasons why there may be a challenge for why people choose uh, an alternative that most likely, or perhaps at least in the beginning, will be more expensive than the uh, conventionally fished option, right? Or the conventionally produced option. Uh, have you spent a lot of time thinking about consumer perceptions around uh, your product, uh, you know, when it hits the market versus this um, halo that seafood has, both from a health standpoint, also from this idea of freshness and, um, you know, it's rich history of, of fishing across the globe. Um, you know, I, I think of my family. They, they love seafood. Um, and every time we go on vacation together, it's at least when we used to before the pandemic. It was usually a um, a beach destination. And they love nothing more than going and ordering the freshest seafood available. Uh, and that's the beauty of being in a place near the ocean. Um Now, what would be the reasons why someone would would go down the path of choosing a cultivated seafood option uh, when fresh seafood is available? Or are we, and maybe I'm answering your question, but I'm just going to throw it out there. Or are we preparing for a future when it's less likely we'll be able to get the fresh seafood because of what we're doing to the oceans? uh, And you're just preparing yourself for that inevitable future when You know, getting the fresher seafood being shipped from somewhere in Scandinavia to New York in a in a fancy sushi restaurant is not going to be possible, or fresh caught seafood is just going to be more expensive and scarce. And then you're a great alternative. So I guess a lot of it depends on timing. But I'm I'm just sort of curious about um, how you think through all these issues as you inevitably are planning for a, a launch in the market at some point.
2: Yeah. So one thing I know is that uh, all else being equal, myself included, by the way, when you're at the grocery store, you're going to opt for probably the the cheapest option, right? Um, Maybe not so true when you're on vacation with your family by the beach. Um, But let's say, let's take the more sort of like day-to-day experience uh, for starters. And one of the things that we know is that in real terms, you know, I I know salmon best because that's what we're focused on. Um... Salmon prices have risen something like 5x general inflation over the last 5 to 10 years. And there are a couple of reasons for that. And I saw two articles just this morning about this that are driving that. So on one hand, so you can get your fish two ways, right? You can get your fish by wild catching it, and you can get your fish by farming it today. So let's take each of those in turn. On On the wild catch side, we have pushed many of the species of fish that we eat almost to the brink of extinction. Um, And unfortunately, what that means is that if we want to create more seafood on a per capita basis, or even just to meet, you know, the the demand for the next billion people that are going to be on this planet, there's no additional wiggle room to sustainably fish that kind of a volume from the ocean. Um, There was this great piece in the New York Times today about like, Uh, maybe it was yesterday about illegal fishing from the Chinese off the coast of South America. If you haven't seen this piece yet, take a look. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's this, there's this issue and there's lots of game theory reasons that explain why this happens, but you know, in open waters that don't technically belong to anybody, there's a very strong incentive to not treat that as your own resource, right. But to treat it as somebody else's resource. And this has been happening in wild fishing for a long time. And the responsible sportsmen, And the environmentalists, I think, are aligned that this is a terrible idea, right? Because there will be no future for wild catch fish for sportsmen and others um, if these bad practices continue. So I, I think we would all kind of agree that on the wild catch side, that's a dead end. Now, on the farming side, I saw another article saying that because of global warming, fish farms are having astronomically high mortality rates. So salmon need to be kept at a very cool temperature. And if the water gets too warm, parasites take over um, like sea lice and other nasty things that nobody likes. And then, you know, mortality rates skyrocket. And so as a result, the supply has been quite constrained, even on the farming side. And in places like British Columbia on the West coast of the U S and other places, there's been fewer and fewer licenses being given to fish farms. And so, the effect of this is that supply has been constrained on both sides of the equation wild catch and farmed and so if we want to have a cheaper option we just need a third option to make that kind of seafood and that's really what we're focused on and in the long run we'll be able to be significantly cheaper than than both of those options and maybe not even so, so, so long run so let's assume that you are price insensitive though mm-hmm. like why else would you want to buy this and and i you know i already talked a little bit about some of the health benefits, which is, you know, providing the same nutritional components without the baggage of mercury and microplastics and antibiotics. You know, we had a going away party, a retirement party for one of our investors at our tasting room two weeks ago. And there's this woman there, super pregnant, eating our sushi. <laughs> like that is freaking cool. Right. Uh, that, that just doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I've had a couple of kids like that was my wife's request for like the first meal after they were born was let's go get some sushi. And and I think you know same thing when you when you go visit a pediatrician's office they'll tell you like hey don't give your kids too much fish because of all these downsides right and so like taking that stuff off the table in in a really reliable way is is powerful the third reason I would say is uh, you know I know you're kind of New York based Uh, there's all there's every few years somebody does a report about like let's test the DNA on the fish at a New York sushi restaurant. (laughs) And sure, sure as the sun will come up tomorrow, uh, you're probably going to get some mislabeled fish in the mix. And and it is a symptom of this really complicated supply chain that involves human slavery and all this other stuff that I think nobody wants. But it's very difficult, except at very small scale, to have a really transparent and traceable supply chain, which, of course, in our case, we solve for. You know, It's made in San Francisco. You can come see it made if you want. Um, we know exactly where all of our inputs come from and then lastly just from a culinary perspective uh, you know you mentioned the the seaside beach experience the truth is like most people don't live by the beach right and most of the fish that you're eating has been frozen mm-hmm. um, if you're eating sushi it's been frozen sorry to break it to you so it is not that fresh um and with what we're doing you know we could have fresh fisheries in each of the major cities right and you can get truly fresh fish year round, right? Like salmon, let's say you love king salmon. When it's salmon season, you can get it fresh. Um, You can kind of take it out of the water, barbecue it. The rest of the year, you're eating like nine month old salmon. So yes, it's been frozen, but like that is the furthest thing from this like ideal fresh caught thing. Now, everything I just said uh, I want to include the ma- the massive caveat that most people don't know a lot of this stuff like I'm a seafood geek, right, and so we are currently thinking about how how do we do consumer education in a way that doesn't throw shade on the conventional producers because we don't want to do that right mm-hmm. like it's important that people eat seafood and the people who are producing it now um, are doing their best to sort of meet this demand. Um, but we also need to do it in a truthful way, right? Which is like, there are these problems and they are aware of that equally acutely as we are. And so one of the things that we've been doing is just trying to have a lot of outreach with conventional seafood processors and fishers just so we can work together on this big problem that we have. Because, you know, if you if you pay attention to some of the environmental stories that are being tossed around there. So quick fact, Earth's uh, oceans are responsible for 93% of carbon sequestration. So our oceans are our planet's refrigerators. If we dredge the bottom uh, of those oceans and kill all the sea life down there, um, and we wipe out all the fish except jellyfish, I think we should be worried that maybe the refrigerator isn't going to work anymore, right? Um, and there's been just recently like a number of papers that are starting to talk about the carbon impact of these kinds of fishing practices, which are... Colossal. So I, I I like to do these kinds of conversations and talk about these things, not because, you know, shame on the conventional, you know, fishing Mm -hmm. industry, but like, let's just come to grips with the reality of kind of where we are. Like, what are some of the downsides to seafood and think about how we can do all these things more sustainably. Right. And on, in in aquaculture, that might look like these recirculating aquaculture systems, these land-based systems, um, you know, on the open seas, good controls to prevent bad overfishing practices like I was talking about. All of these things have to be true if we're going to even have a majorly successful hope at turning around some of these, you know, kind of climate and food security issues that we talked about earlier.
1: Oh, I appreciate all that background. I think that's, I love that you mentioned you're a seafood geek because now I'm going to geek out with you a little bit because now I'm, I'm interested to learn more. Um, what percentage of, of, of say salmon, let's just talk about that specifically is, is, uh, farmed versus wild caught, um, in terms of consumption, like all the amounts sold in terms of tonnage. In, if yeah. In
2: the U S it's about 80% farmed,
1: farmed. Wow. Okay. And so the wild caught, where's that mostly coming from?
2: Uh, well, you can't wild catch Atlantic salmon anymore mm-hmm. uh, because that is a truly endangered species. Um, so, if you are having wild salmon, it's going to be like king or coho or sockeye. A lot of it's coming from the Pacific Northwest up to Alaska. Um, there are some some fish elsewhere, but that's the that's the majority of where it's coming from. Another wrinkle here is that a lot of the wild fish that's caught in Alaska is actually shipped by boat to China to be processed and then shipped back. <laughs> so <laughs> like I even wonder whether that's like technically a domestic thing at that point. Um there's some great articles you can read about. It. I think the Guardian wrote a piece about that, um which is a really interesting uh I had no idea that that was the case. Um but globally if you look at the overall numbers, we're something like 55% of all seafood eaten by humans is farmed at this point. Mm. Um now that might sound great, but the trouble is still, unfortunately, a lot of farmed fish feed comes from sardines and anchovies and other wild fish mm-hmm. that are ground up and turned into fish feed. And you know, there's a lot of efforts underway to kind of vegify that's a word, the, the food supply for, for aquaculture, but we're yeah. not there yet at scale.
1: And in terms of the farmed fish industry let's just start with the u.s um maybe i'm happy if you can give a global perspective as well but let's start with the u.s how is the industry set up uh is it vertically integrated do the fish farms um just do that and then work with distributors um and you know why i'm, I'm heading to these questions because i guess it'll probably be influencing how your go-to-market strategy will eventually unfold. Um, because yeah if you you're right now focused on on one hand in making a product, and we'll get to the science of making the product, but I think that is secondary. I think more importantly, once you have the product at scale at price parity, once you've you've figured out those barriers, which we'll talk about in a bit, uh, you probably will have multiple paths on how you 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 take this to market. Do you actually have a branded product, do you work with an existing? player or distributor in the industry what role do you play will be determined largely by how the industry is structured today because that would be a best bet to get mass scale distribution and adoption
2: yeah so the global aquaculture industry is fairly consolidated you know there are a handful of very large uh, global companies largely based not in the U.S. actually Um, one's owned by a Japanese conglomerate one is, uh, I'm thinking mostly about salmon here. Mm-hmm. Um, one is, two of them are based in Norway. Um, third one is you know, some, a huge amount of production happening in Chile. That's where most of the farming is today and where our imports are coming from into this country. Um, but they are not overly vertically integrated. So, you know, a, a processed fish, and by processed I just mean like, you know, maybe headed and gutted. Um, you know, sometimes the whole fish is sold on to distributors, which then sell it on to restaurants. Um, you know, it, it is really sort of like the slicing, the catching and the slicing of the fish is kind of the end of, you know, one step in the value chain and then the distribution of that fish to a restaurant. And then the final butchering of that fish down to the sort of whatever cut they want to sell in the restaurant happens at the restaurant. Um, so that's, you know, they're kind of these three parts in the value mm-hmm. chain to oversimplify.
1: Yeah, and then I'm assuming it's maybe similar or slightly different depending on retail, so I guess some are sold in retail too.
2: Yes, of course, yeah. So, um, you know, I think most of retail is being provided fillets. There's not oh. a lot of um, local uh, dissection of fish happening <laughs> at your local grocery store.
1: <laughs> well, that's, you know, it's, it's so... Um don't really sit I don't sit and think about seafood that often and in, in terms of how the industry is organized but it's um it's so fascinating that w- w- what you're trying to do is not necessarily replace the industry right and I think that's that's an important clarification it's more about replacing the source of seafood in that industry and so you know speaking of which let's just get into how how that is going so we spent all this time talking about background and potentially. Consumer reactions and go-to-market strategies to a certain extent. Um, t- talk to me about the science of it um, in terms of what it is that it takes to. Let, actually, let's 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 not explain the science of it. I, I don't think that's important. I think what's important right now, uh, given you've been um, at this for a few years, is where are you in the process and what are your biggest barriers to scale.
2: Yeah, so I'd say that the, the most challenging thing is that nobody's ever tried to grow this volume of fish cells before, which of course is our, you know, most important input for for our products. And so we we've had to develop that ourselves, which is, you know, truly discovery-based science, and that takes a lot of time and it's been something that Ari and I have try to get much better at, you know, setting kind of commercial goals around science uh, is something that is really freaking hard to do, honestly. Um, But I I think we've gotten to a place where, you know, by and large, we've kind of stayed on track to to what we said we we would do. So, I mean, at this point, you know, the biggest thing that we, the biggest thing that's slowing us down is that, you know, you need a very specific type of facility, right? And in, in a lot of other instances, you would just rent that facility for a while, from like a, what's called a CMO, right? Sort of a a contract manufacturer mm-hmm. who loans you the equipment or leases you the equipment space in their facility. Now the trouble is for what we're doing, um, there's just no know-how. Like, so we, and we looked at that as an option. And so what that means is that we have to build our own facility. So we have had one production plant up and running since last summer Uh, in 2021, we are in the process of building a second one now, but it's much bigger. It should be done sometime next year, hopefully early. And then there's a third one on the horizon, which is much bigger that we are still in the earlier stages of planning for. Um, but each of these is like a year long project that requires a lot of resources, both financial, of course, but also time. And then just (laughs) the trouble is with supply chains the way they are today, you sort of need to order equipment a year in advance. Um, but by the time you get that equipment in in an environment like ours, your technology has advanced and changed. And so we're already modifying stuff that we ordered a year ago, um, because it's kind of obsolete based on what we were doing. And so honestly, I know this sounds like very kind of practical, fairly boring, like supply chain stuff, but that's really what's holding us up right now. Um, if I had unlimited money, I would not be scared to just build that next biggest Mm. plant we could do it um it's just i I don't have unlimited money and i need to sort of justify that next tranche of capital that we'd be raising based on results right and so we need to build these facilities we need to run them for six months and show that we're getting the kind of outcomes that we need and that's the moment that that we are in at Wildtype. Um, and then of course in parallel there's the regulatory conversation that's happening with fda in our case which is our sole regulator and that takes time, right? They have a lot of questions. Um, there's a lot of consensus building that needs to happen. I think within the the halls of the U.S. government that this is that we've thought through all of the potential hazards uh, associated with producing food in this way. Um, but I, I, you know, that's that's moving along. I think relatively quickly. So I'd say those are the two things. I mean, if you know, we had regulatory approval tomorrow, we'd be ready to go.
1: I mean, you said ready to go in terms of. Um getting a product to the market, would you be able to Mm -hmm. obviously at a small scale to begin with?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Like we couldn't service all of your restaurants (laughs) just (laughs) to give you a sense of the scale here. Um, but you know, we could, you know, we could do a few.
1: And in terms of the, you mentioned the equipment. So, okay. I obviously I'm, I'm asking from a perspective of someone who's an outsider who doesn't understand the inner workings Mm -hmm. of, um, A facility like that. What I heard from what you were saying was it seems like it's mostly the bioreactor equipment that seems to be the concern, or is it also the inputs or the nutrients or the mediums or the scaffolding? If you could break it down in terms of um, the various components that are um, expensive in the process or that need to be customized to do what you're doing scientifically. How would you, for a, from a layman's perspective, break those down?
2: Yeah, so there there are two things at play here. There's think about it like the fixed investment, and you know you mentioned bioreactors, which you know for other people listening who may not know what that means, it's basically just a big brew tank with an agitator that monitors things like temperature and you know pH and oxygen content. It's actually not that complicated. Um, they are expensive and they take a long time. There's, uh, you know, in our case, other equipment that we use for like downstream processing to kind of get the finished product, even things like air compressors and steam in place equipment, you know, these big steam generators that can help sterilize our, our tanks between runs. Things like that are just backordered and take forever to design. So that's one bucket of things that you sort of invest once in. And then, of course, that cost is amortized over however long you, you run the plant. That's mostly what I was talking about. Is just getting mm-hmm. those plants up and running. There's a separate but related issue with unit cost, and the inputs that are most expensive there are the is predominantly the feed that we give to our cells that help them grow in this healthy way. And the reason that's expensive is because that whole industry has grown up around the pharmaceutical industry. Which, if you know anything about pharmaceuticals, you can charge whatever the heck you want, right? For like taking care of your health is not like an elastic thing. You're going to pay what you need to, to get a drug. And if it's more expensive to produce for whatever reason, it will be more expensive in the market. Mm -hmm. That doesn't work so well with seafood uh, or with any food when you've got an alternative that's cheaper. And so we've had a multi-year effort, like four and a half years now of big focus on reducing the cost of that particular input. We've made a ton of progress and I think we're getting, much, much closer to some economics that are really interesting in our, in our finished product. And so I think it's those, those kind of two issues, right? There's the sort of like fixed equipment one that's really time consuming and long lead times. And then there's the sort of unit cost ones that we are extremely focused on over, over the long run.
1: And in terms of the actual um, process of producing the end product, what? Um, Are you at the point where you, if assuming you had unlimited money and could uh, control the sourcing of the feed and could build the best uh, equipment that you could have on planet Earth uh, and forget about the cost for now, would you have an end product that you would say is salmon? Are you already there in terms of the end product or is that also a process of iteration and evolution and, uh, improvement.
2: Mm. Yeah. It's funny. We just covered the three major key performance indicators that we've been focused on since we (laughs) started the company, but we cover them in reverse order. So first and foremost for us has always been the, the quality of the product. Um, I, I can confidently say, and I've tried a lot of alternatives, (laughs) basically everything that I've ever, ever been able to get my hands on. We easily have the best, alternative seafood product on the planet today. So is it perfect and can it get better? Uh, Most certainly it is not perfect and most certainly it can continue to get better and it will, but it's already pretty darn good. Um, Particularly, you know, and you know, we decided to do something really audacious, which is making a piece of nigiri that sits on top of a piece of rice. It's not breaded, it's not deep fried, it's not covered in mayo, it's just the thing, right? And so there's nowhere to hide. Uh, and half the time when we do tastings, people just kind of pick the piece of salmon off and just eat it, um, and it's pretty good, honestly. You're not missing much, <laughs> so. Um, but it can certainly it can certainly improve, um, you know. And the other thing, of course, is that we're working on other form factors, you know, like fillets and so on that we'll we'll introduce so, uh, soon, hopefully. Um, but you know, and in then in the second and third KPIs for us are cost, sort of reaching that price parity point, which is getting easier, by the way, because as I said, conventional seafood is becoming more expensive. Mm -hmm. So the bar is moving in our favor. Um, And then scale. Can we make enough of this to really make a dent, right? Um, Globally, there's something like 160 million tons of seafood consumed a year, (laughs) like uh, metric tons, excuse me, which is just uh, a, a mind boggling amount of food, right? And even doing like, one million of those metric tons this is this huge undertaking that's going to take us a while to do the company
1: so fascinating also from a from a product standpoint is the sushi grade salmon any different from the one that you would cook or smoke is it the same so if, if you took one of your um, your products that are sushi grade salmon and and pan fried it would that function like salmon or are they would you need to have a different cell composition for that to behave differently
2: yeah for now anyway we ha- we haven't been able to make one product that serves every sort of finished mm. um outcome so we tooled this one for raw and curing and you know th- those kind of preparations um we have another one that is made for you know sort of like that center of plate salmon filet um at some point those of course will merge and we'll just have one thing that is salmon you can treat it exactly the same way as you treat every salmon um piece but um that is still something that we're working on
1: And i'm sure you get asked this question so i'm sure you saw this coming from a million miles away but uh when do you expect to have a product in the market assuming you get the fda approval let's just assume that's all figured out when's the earliest um and maybe the answer is tomorrow if you got FDA approval, right? Earliest, you could potentially have this for sale in the U.S. in a restaurant, potentially. So we have
2: our restaurant partners selected. We just haven't announced them yet. Mm. Um, and they're super exciting. Um, we are getting ready in the next week or two to move into trials for our actual production technology. So we're there, basically. Um, Again, it's going to be super small quantities, and you know we're always scaling up, and so that will continue to grow. But I, I, I think the main thing, if you had talked to me like a year ago or a year and a half ago or any time before that, I would have said, I have no idea. <laughs> but I, I, I think we are at this moment where it's imminent.
1: And from a cost Not just standpoint. For us, but from others, yeah. Yeah, well, from a cost standpoint, when are those, um, you know, when is salmon going to become expensive enough that it matches the price of your product or your product becomes cheap enough that you beat the price of salmon
2: <laughs> i think it's more of the second force than the first one but th- you know they certainly both need to happen uh, you know I, I look at it this way for for the first few years just similar to any other technology this is going to be kind of a premium thing mm-hmm. um you know and I, I would like it to not be but the reality is it's just very difficult to do this and you know we're not at mega scale yet. I, you know, I'd say, so like call that like years one through five. That's the general nature of what we're doing here. Years five through 10, I would think like fairly close unit economics at small scale, smallish scale, like ubiquitous in restaurants around the US, let's say, but not in, you know, your everyday Walmart or Trader Joe's or Kroger store. And, and I think it's really like the 10 to 15 year mark where this kind of technology can be everywhere. Right. And that is a similar timeline, by the way, to Impossible's Journey, Mm -hmm. which has this, you know, kind of a similar complexity in its production technology.
1: And have you considered uh, potentially launching outside of the US as a way to get a head start on uh, being able to put something on the market because of? differences in in regulatory frameworks or are you just focused on the u.s and can you give me the reasoning why
2: we are focused on the u.s (laughs) i i don't know maybe because of my previous job but i am a very patriotic american and (laughs) i like this idea about exporting like america's going to export cool stuff in the future i really think we need to do that across the board and i would love our products to be one of those things so you know i want to produce this product in the u.s i want to I don't want to be having the same conversation about wild type salmon being made in Finland and then processed in freaking China and then shipped on a boat back to California. Like I want to make it here and sell it here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that's kind of, sounds like probably an emotional thing, um, but maybe it is, <laughs> but you know, I, I don't know. I, I like this idea of having like, you know, seafood that is made and consumed here. Um, and it's a big market, right? I mean, yes, all these companies are going to Singapore, but, like, no offense, but who cares, right? Like, New York City is bigger than the entire country of Singapore um, in terms of population. So, like, you're not going to move the needle. And each country has its own sort of regulatory pathway that is mm-hmm. time-consuming to entrepreneurs like us. So, that I don't know. That's kind of how we've thought about it.
1: And I'm sure you've looked closely at some of the, and you mentioned Impossible, but, but there's obviously been several examples in the last few years of... Uh, companies in the plant-based food space that have gone to market uh, with really revolutionary new products using technology. Um, what have you learned from their journeys that you would like to avoid in in your path to, to market? Um, and that's assuming that you want to be a consumer-facing brand and uh, maybe at least to get started with and then decide what the right path is to to truly... Um, realize the full potential of your technology and your company
2: let me just start with a caveat there's this great quote by theodore roosevelt you know he talks about the man in the arena i don't know if you're familiar with that check it out check it out after the podcast so i am admittedly you know in the stands yelling at the man in the arena at this point so you know call be that as it may we're not in the arena yet but I, I think there are a couple things um, that we've learned as we've watched. Uh, one is focus is really important. Companies do really well, especially small ones, when they make one great product. right? And if you look at the early days of Beyond, when they were in three different or four different SKUs, and Impossible was launching just the burger, and that is what all of their R&D might was pointed toward, they made a better product right? As a result. So I think focus leads to great products. Um, And that is always true for companies of our size. So, you know, I think that is a better approach. And that is why wild type is just focused on making the best possible salmon we can. The second thing I'd say is, you know, I, a lot of people like to sort of point, you know, shake, wag a finger at Beyond Meats sliding stock price um, and say, oh, look, nobody cares about plant-based foods. I, I think the real issue is perhaps they just haven't innovated as much as they need to, right. And sort of rolled out another product beyond the things that, that they've already done. That is step function better. Right. Um, And a lot of credit is due to them. I mean, they've made a lot of, you know, great products, but maybe it's been too many things and not enough sort of like really catch your imagination types of products. Right. And and so I think it's, Ari and I think about the future of our company that is top of mind, which is like, how do we continue to like blow ourselves up effectively and reform the company to make that next better product, that sort of gen four, right? We talked about these like three phases. So like what is going to be gen four and like identify that and dedicate resources to making the thing. So by the time wild types, you know, sushi grade salmon and fillets, ubiquitous, we've already got that next thing in the hopper and ready to launch and dazzle consumers all over again.
1: And do you foresee any... I mean, it, I guess it's an obvious answer here, but it's a question of how you're preparing for it. Any um, pushback in terms of your product from a nutrition standpoint, from a safety standpoint? Um, I guess a lot of this is to be determined. I think part of it is the the fda approval but that doesn't end the matter um you can be in the market be deemed food safe and uh, meet all the quality standards but you can't really stop people from spinning stories about the dangers of consuming something unnatural developed in a lab or a bioreactor or whatever you may call it um yeah i mean i i guess what's your general take on that i mean some of this is to be seen and determined as, as things unfold, but uh, I'm sure that's something you spend time thinking about.
2: Mm. Yeah, look, I, I think w- we don't typically throw stones at conventional producers. Um, and, you know, maybe this is naive, but I hope that would be reflected in, like, you'll never catch me saying, like, I want to put the beef industry into a death spiral which one of my fellow founders has said um like i just don't think that's helpful and that's going to start the kinds of things that you're talking about um so that's one thing you know another is these things are going to come up right people have big markets that they need to protect um disinformation is weaponized these days in a way that is staggeringly scary um I don't think we're going to descend to doing those kinds of things. You know, I think we will hold our heads high, be transparent, open and honest and data driven and people can kind of make their own decisions. Um, but I don't think this is going to appeal to everybody and some people are going to really hate this. Um, and that's okay. Right. And the the onus is on us to win them over eventually. Um, and I, I find that to be a challenge that is super hard and really inspiring. Um, you know, I, I would love to, change some of those people's minds over the next 10 15 20 years
1: so i think you mentioned you have kids right Mm -hmm. so looking ahead what what do you envision the future of your kids plates are going to look like um say in 20 years let's just give the year 2050 let's say by the year 2050 um most of what we've discussed hopefully will come to fruition uh It'll be a hopefully different world and hopefully a better one than the one we're forecasting if you don't do anything about our food system. Um, we started off talking about what you ate growing up. What do you think your kids are going to be eating? They obviously, will be older then, but um, what what do you foresee the food system to really look like and um, culturally, what will be the norm um, when it comes to food? Any any thoughts on that generally could be related to wild type or it could generally be about the food system?
2: Mm. For starters, I think we have this chance if we play our cards right and we invest in alternative technologies to never have to have the kind of conversation that we just did about all of these problems. Like we will just have a food supply that is in harmony with the resources that our planet can provide um, in the way, by the way, that indigenous people did for thousands of years. Now, granted, that's small scale and, you know, not a kind of consumer focused way of living um but it's it's 100 possible so i would love by 2050 to never have another podcast like this again um not not to mention uh and like no offense to you and like the the power of this platform and we need to be having these conversations but i i hope we can make them obsolete and like this idea of having mercury poisoning is going to be like i don't know (laughs) like why would you have asbestos in your house or like lead paint? You know, we're going to like look back on these things, and be like, oh my God, like why the hell did we do that in the 80s? Like, you know, and you just sort of look back on these sort of relics of the past as, you know, kind of sad that we were like poisoning ourselves with this food that we're catching in our oceans. Um, so that's one thing, the, the sort of darker side going away. On the plus side, I I think there's just going to be this abundance of choice, um, and like new things. And like, I'll give you an example, like who would have thought that like a a crunchy sushi roll would be a thing, but like, that is, I don't know about you, but for my money, that's like one of the most like satisfying things like you can eat. And that's like neither traditional Japanese nor really American. It's just this thing that was made, right. That is super good. Um, and, and, you know, and I think about like when I was a kid, Ketchup was I think probably the most popular condiment in America. Today it's salsa, I believe. And I don't know about you, but I would rather have salsa every day than ketchup, right? So you think about like just the advance of food just getting better and better and more diverse and sort of better reflective of who we are as a country. And I don't know. That that just gives me a lot of hope. But I hope they're gonna like look back and you know, that wild type when we're still around at that point and be like, gosh, dad's Dad's job is so boring. Why isn't he working on the biggest problems of today?
1: <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Uh, well, Justin, I have really enjoyed this conversation. It's been uh, it's been great to, to learn a lot more about you as well as the work that you're doing with Wild Type. Um, excited to see what's next. I mean, this is uh, early stages of uh, ever evolving, um, both scientific as well as um, technological and and sort of commercial experiment that we hopefully will will play uh, become a part of our food system in the years to come. Um, I think it's it's a it's a very for me it's really fascinating to think about that when these products hit the market and and all the you know having seen what happened with plant based food and is happening with plant based foods and continues to get politicized and um, it's interesting to hear from you about how you, you you want it to be in America. You want, I think there's so much more to talk about when it comes to food manufacturing in this country and the, the realigning of our political incentives around it and what changes mm-hmm. need to happen from a policy standpoint to, to usher in sort of a future of um, uh, a more resilient uh, food system that we can uh, maybe bring back uh, a lot of that uh, economic strength that we maybe are starting to give away or lose uh, in the last few yeah. years. So, you know, there's, there's so many dimensions to this this discussion that we could get into, but uh, we try to keep it focused on, on your company. But I think it's interesting how it touches so much of what, what is happening around us and potentially is to come in the decades ahead.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, this is a really fun conversation. I really loved being on the on the podcast.
1: You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoy this conversation and would like to show your support, all you have to do is subscribe to this show and rate and review it. To learn more about this podcast or my work, go to eftp.co. That's eftp.co. Thank you for listening.